Welcome to the podcast where we clear up common misconceptions in biology and evolution. And learn that all the answers to evolution's mysteries are simple in the way that everything is astoundingly complicated. Welcome to Darwin's Black Book. My name is Tom. I'm a zoologist from the University of Southampton, currently finishing my Master's of Research in the Evolution of Primate Brains. And I'm Becca. I'm a PhD student from the University of Exeter, also in evolutionary biology. And I'm doing the evolution and genetics of ageing. So the point of this podcast, why, why we wanted to make it, it's to explore evolutionary ideas, topics, breaking down some seriously hefty theories, normally only accessible to scientists uh, sitting in labs, uh, basically making them accessible to everyone interesting to listen to if we try hard enough uh, and maybe even amusing yeah these ideas while they seem complicated they they don't have to only be accessible to sort of top scientists while they sound complicated we believe that if someone explains it to you in the right way everyone can understand it it all does make sense and everything does fit together basically becca will be explaining it well and i'll just be nodding in agreement in the background uh <laughs> um, but yeah we're gonna have have a go at debunking some evolutionary myths, breaking down misconceptions, generally having a chat about really cool biology in the process. Um, yeah, and a personal goal for me, at least, with this podcast is making you, as the listener, look at the world in a slightly different way next time you go outside, because it is it is a fantastic world that we live in, and one that's not nearly studied enough. Absolutely. And for me, a personal goal, when I first became interested in evolution, it was from nature, really, and from looking at the world around me. And then I realised that I wanted to go into evolution and genetics because the answers to some of the questions I was interested in could really only be found there. Perfect. So onwards with the podcast. First of all, Becca, where can we be found on social medias, please? Well, Tom, we have a Twitter and it is called at Darwin Black Book or hashtag DBB. And that's Darwin Black Book without an S because we ran out of characters, so... Thanks, Twitter. Um, before we go on, I just want to extend a massive thank you to the British... British... British? British Ecological Society for helping fund this show, getting off its feet. They gave us basically just some cash to buy the equipment, uh, get some sound stuff going. Uh, really, just a massive thank you. Uh, extended to them. Absolutely. And we also want to talk a little bit about their, their magazine, which is called The Niche, because it's going to be coming up a lot um, in our future episodes, because there's loads of really cool research in there, um, written in a way that anyone can understand. Sounds perfect. Right. Without further ado, let's get into some evolution. Becca, right. What is the topic of today's episode? Well, we thought we'd start off with the general theory of evolution literally the biggest topic in evolution evolution itself yes <laughs> so we're not we're not going to go into huge detail on absolutely everything but the future episodes are going to be sort of pinpointing down some more interesting specific ideas um but we're going to start off with kind of the underlying foundation that leads us onto these other ideas that are going to be coming up yes perfect we're going to um an extension of what we're going to be talking about in future episodes as well almost a history of natural history looking at specific examples of some really cool evolution that's that's not publicized that well as well as um yeah just, just debunking some common misconceptions about it yeah absolutely and sometimes people come to us with questions that are really good questions and we don't know the answers to um so we're going to be bringing them up as well it's as much of a learning process for us as it is for you guys 
Absolutely. Like one of the questions we got was, I was never a monkey. Why do you think evolution's real? Um, I didn't even, I was like, I know that's not true, but that's just such a huge topic. I don't even know where to start. So is that stuff we're, we're going to be having a stab at? And, and yeah, it's stuff that you, yeah, you know, it's not true, but you don't know how to say it's not true. <laughs> yeah. Disclaimer. We, we don't, we're not going to tell you you were monkeys. It's not quite how it worked. We'll come to that in a future episode, but we, it's not, it's not quite like that. <laughs> so today we're going to be talking about the history of evolution itself uh what the idea was um the plays behind the idea who the heck was darwin and what the heck was an evolution basically an evolution <laughs> a singular evolution yeah anyway before we we start touching the biology itself tom we need to talk about Sounds serious. We need to talk. It is serious. We need to talk about the word theory. Because when you say it to your friends or your family, just in, in your casual life. I have a theory. Um, yes, you probably mean, I've had an idea. I've had a cool idea. Um, it's just out of nowhere. I haven't got any evidence for it yet, but I have a theory about this. Now, when scientists and the way we're going to use it here say the word theory, it's actually slightly different. Theory is something that someone's come up with and there is evidence for, and it's kind of the general consensus for what we think is actually right. Yes, and I think where people get confused is where between the hypothesis, what scientists call a hypothesis, and the theory itself. As you said, the theory is once you've tested it to destruction and lots of labs have tested it to destruction and it survived that destruction, then you've got the best mm -hmm. possible explanation for what's going on at the moment. The hypothesis is the bit when you say, I have an idea. Yes, yeah, so really when you have an idea with your friends and family, you should be like, I have a hypothesis, but then not you, I have a theory. Then you sound a bit, just a bit odd. But you would be right and you could, <laughs> you could sit there knowing how right you are. <laughs> smug, you could be smug. Exactly. Um, so yeah, theories are just exceptionally strong. Um, they stem from the scientific method. It is, yeah, it is the best of our current understanding what we've got at the moment. Um, other such theories you may have heard of at the moment, atomic theory. It what it's, it's what make power plants work and also not work when they're going to melt down. Atomic theory and also bombs. Atomic theory. Um, quantum mechanics, another fun one. Uh, quantum theory, observing the behaviour of molecules on an atomic level and in how they interact with the universe. Um, and and possibly the one that would be slightly harder to argue with. Um, gravitational theory, because we all live on a globe. And no, I'm not going to go down so low as to actually try and defend that <laughs> we live on a globe but there's gravity yeah we don't have time for that <laughs> if if you're um yeah if you think the world is flat maybe do some reading and then come back to this episode um there's only so much we can do yeah starting the sass off strong <laughs> it's um we're gonna try okay so a point of this podcast as well we're not gonna insult we're not gonna make it um uh, just just an insulting way to educate we want to we want to educate through um discussion uh, evidence-based discussion and hopefully everyone whatever your opinion can uh, listen and get something out of this as well absolutely and what's really useful is that while tom and i are both evolutionary biologists we're from very different areas within that so he knows a lot that i don't know and mainly animals yeah and just, examples just animals. so i work a lot with kind of genetics and theory and that sort of thing where tom works with the actual the actual animals and the actual things so um yeah we'll be teaching each other quite a lot as well through this you say it so well 
Becca works in a lab. I stand in a field staring at birds, <laughs> basically. And we both sometimes works. stare at computers. Quite frequently, yes. actually. <laughs> Far too much as of recently. <laughs> um, so, yeah, the first part of what I wanted to look at is the kind of process versus the mechanics. Um, so evolution is a process. It is the gradual change of a trait in an animal, so a feature, uh, hair colour, eye colour, neck size. Um, but it's the gradual change of the trait through time by means of a mutation. When you say neck size, you mean neck length, right? Like a giraffe or something, or like how wide? Yes. Depends how <laughs> chunky you want. <laughs> I don't know if, I mean, I if guess neck chunkiness <laughs> is a genetic thing or not, so I can't comment on that. <laughs> hey, we can bring that up next episode. I have yes. no idea. Surely it must be. <laughs> so evolution is the process of which of, of the change itself, whereas the mechanical aspect of, of how it happens of how things change is through natural selection by means of which by means of which the own the most appropriate genes are passed on through generations uh one generation survives more um because of a beneficial trait and they will pass on their genes to the next generation that is natural selection which is the mechanical bit and evolution is the process itself and it, it's kind of that easy um you may have heard natural selection also called survival of the fittest. It just basically means if your trait is better than everyone else's trait in your in your population, then you're probably going to survive more and have more offspring, have more babies. Exactly. So that's that's basically what evolution is. That trait will then get passed on more and the others will disappear into the background. Exactly. It's all disappear entirely. And yeah, there's a lot of, I mean, I mean, the basics that it's literally that easy to understand, but there's a lot of different types of evolution, but it boils down to some kind of root causes, which is kind of based through competition between predator and prey, battle of the sexes and trying to get a mate. And this can lead to something called runaway selection, which is great fun. And we're going to lead, uh, probably discuss that in a later episode. But effectively, mm -hmm. why peacocks look as ridiculous as they do. And also the quest to find food that no other species is exploiting. And uh, yeah. It basically, the entire point of life boils down to these three aspects. Food, living, and not dying this afternoon, as well as trying to find a mate. They are, <laughs> that is the point of life. But just to name examples, we've got the speed of a zebra running away from a lion. That's the predator-prey relationship. You don't need to be faster than the lion being a zebra. You just need to be faster than another zebra. Ooh. That means you survive. That means you pass on your genes. And then slowly, over time, that zebra population will get faster. And as a subsequent result of that, so will the lion population. That is evolution. Um, then you've got milkweed producing a sticky latex to trap and poison caterpillars. That's kind of the foraging aspect, looking at uh, trying to get food that no one else has. But then the food might fight back. For example, the plant itself produces a latex because the caterpillars were feeding on it. And uh, it's the relationship between... The plant fighting against the caterpillars and the caterpillars trying to survive against against the latex producing plant and trying to get a one up on that. And finally, kind of on, on the whole finding a mate and reproduction side of it, uh, you've got something called an ignuman wasp. Wasps are one of the most widely diverse insect groups in the world. And the ignuman wasp lays its eggs in a caterpillar. And again, this relationship is between the caterpillar trying to survive against a wasp from stealing it and laying its eggs inside itself. Um, oh, and you said that so casually. 
That's a huge deal. <laughs> it's really grim. And between the actual wasp itself um, trying to get hold of the caterpillars, and again, it's this kind of war between the two of them. There's also these um, salamanders that are ridiculously toxic, and that there are these snakes that naturally eat them that are ridiculously good at eating toxic things. And that's another example of a runaway selection. So the more toxic the salamander gets to try and escape from the snake and you know kill the snake when it tries to eat it, the snakes then evolve to get more and more good at eating toxic things, and then and you end up with this crazy kind of interaction that we've got now. Of which you would neither like to meet either of them because they're both incredibly toxic no. animals. Um, but that actually brings up a really, really good point. Evolution works when there is a pressure in the environment, when there is something attacking you you've got to try and find a mate or you've got to try and find food with that pressure on you in that environment your the population the species uh, is more likely to change so pressures can be anything as simple as temperature and you can evolve to survive better at certain temperatures or it can be something really extreme which which we're going to be talking a bit more about in our second episode so i won't give any spoilers here but as we said previously, by understanding the theory, you can get to the point about what life is all about, which is survive, find food, make more DNA, pass on that DNA to the in genes to your offspring. And that that is kind of the point of what life is. It's a fairly simple concept, but more def defining needed. Becca, what is DNA? That's a big question, Tom. <laughs> So DNA is nothing more than essentially a type of chemical. Um, it's made up of these tiny little units called nucleotides that basically all link up together in really specialised ways and make that really famous double helix shape you probably think of when you hear the word DNA. Um, but it's really important to remember that it is merely a chemical. It doesn't. It's not sentient. It doesn't have a mind of its own. It doesn't want to reproduce. It just does because that's that's what this chemical does. Like when you apply heat to water and it starts to boil, the water doesn't want to boil. It just does because it's just what it does. Yeah. It's a chemical reaction. And um, yeah, and then say you, you're making dinner. So you add some pasta to that water and the pasta starts to go soft. Pasta doesn't want to go soft. It doesn't care. It doesn't care about anything. It's pasta. So DNA isn't made up of H2O or carbohydrates. It's made up of these nucleotides. And what it does is replicate itself and generate proteins exactly and then the dna is basically formed wrapped exceptionally tightly into a chromosome sections of that chromosome uh will um, genes they can code for very specific features uh to make proteins and whatnot and then those chromosomes are bunged together into the nucleus of your cells and that is uh, this dna is red um, and codes for you Yes, every single little trait that you have or that anything alive has comes down to the proteins that are made by these bits of DNA. Including, potentially, personality. Ooh, but another that is future a, episode. <laughs> <laughs> Literally just coming up with them as we go. Um, <laughs> so yeah, but by understanding DNA, we can kind of understand and discover more about how living things have become so successful and also the creative ways in which evolution has done that um, and the lengths they've gone to in order to survive. Yes, so this brings me very neatly to the living thing that I'm studying um, in the lab. Almost like we planned Almost it. Almost like <laughs> you led me into that. Um, so I look at these tiny microscopic little worms called nematodes and they are animals. Um, they're very, very simple 
but do still contain some of the organs and systems that you see in in higher animals like like us before you go on just for anyone who doesn't know what an nematode actually is it's imagine basically a gray tube and now at one end you have a mouth and then at the other end you got a butt but they look exactly the same but you can see everything going on inside it they cover but where do they live you can find them on every continent in the world including antarctica they live everywhere Literally everywhere. Literally everywhere. In your homes, on your face. Yes, something that um, nematode scientists like to say is that if you take away all kind of matter that there is in the world, but only leave the nematodes, you would still see the outline of everything because they are everywhere. Nematodes cover everything. Anyway, that's not why I study them. (laughs) I study them because they are simple animals and they are basically a really elegant demonstration of what evolution does and how how genes work because they're not they're not sentient they don't have feelings so everything that they do is just defined by the pressures that they're under and they have some really interesting behaviors they got some interesting sort of neural networks so it's kind of nerves and things like that and they got some really interesting um diseases that they can get um so things that you would expect to see in higher animals but maybe made more complicated by by the fact that they are so so big or they live so long Um, But these worms, they only live a couple of weeks and you can observe these things and put them in different environments and see what happens and see how evolution is acting to respond to these environments. Uh, How how am I going to segue into this next bit? The how, how rant. So what I tend to look at in the, the lab with these worms is the sort of why things are happening. So... I'm at the moment focusing on a disease they get, and I'm looking at why they get the disease. If it kills them, why is it still persisting in their population? So that's not all evolution and research is about. It's also really important to consider the how. So I'm actually really interested in the how of of evolution itself. Uh, That kind of gets into the details of survival, foraging and mating. And for me, the really kind of complex and beautiful stuff, parts of biology, an old biology teacher of mine used to say is, the sexy science it's just detailed intricate and and really beautiful the how also consists of the actual chemical processes and and things that happen within the organism to reach to reach the point you're looking at the, the trait that you're seeing exactly you you so why is the thing doing this well then you look at the maybe a better question to ask is how is it doing it the processes that exactly takes place for example a look into the chemical reactions on how a bear detects its prey out or the brain processes that enables an albatross to navigate or the muscle mechanism in the ivan otter which changes the shape of the lens therefore making it capable of seeing underwater it's a cool fact for you there you go um the how in the functioning of the body helps prevent and cure disease and how we can understand things function understanding how an ecosystem works allows us to fix mistakes we've made um what is seen as natural it's it's understanding the how can really help us answer the why so in terms of context you briefly mentioned diseases this is really important so it's not as important for us to know the why although it's very interesting why why we get certain diseases why is it still in the population but the how is what helps us reach a cure or a treatment. So if you can find out what, what's happening in the body, what's happening to your organs or your blood, um, or what genetics have caused it, then it can help you look at how to maybe change that so you don't get the disease or you get less symptoms. Yes, that. 
Thanks for the validation. <laughs> oh gosh, um, I just completely. It's like yeah, that's just, yeah, zoned out entirely. God, um, I'm so interested. <laughs> no, no, no. Okay, I'm gonna. I feel like this Great is job. a hole that you've dug. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Moving on. So a famous kind of a famous kind of quote. No, it is a famous quote. Really kind of. It's a famous quote. Um, so a famous quote, kind of outlining this, is. Surely by breaking down such things, you remove their beauty, reducing a sunset to mere reactions, the scent of a flower on a summer wind to a molecular reaction, and the emotion of love, nothing more than chemicals interacting in your brain. Surely this removes the beauty that is there. Personally, I think the beauty is in the how. The how a flower smells so good, or how a sunset looks so pretty, or how the brain works, how it all fits together is quite possibly one of the most important questions yeah i don't i don't think it removes beauty myself but it's um kind of adds to it definitely adds to it it's um because the truth about how things are as they are is really intricate and detailed and you think how on earth did it get here starting from however life began however the, the world began and we've reached this point of a of a beautiful sunset it's it's a bit crazy so how sunsets happened still confuses me right so <laughs> I have no idea. That's <laughs> we that's, we biologists. That's not my job. <laughs> who studies who studies sunsets? Um, Climatologist, no, sunsetologists, sunsetologists. <laughs> not geography. Maybe physics. Physics. Is that a thing? Mm, I'm on the geography side. I don't know. I'll, um... I have. We should probably use Google more. Well, we could ask someone that we know that does it. Right, we will get back to you with who studies sunsets. <laughs> Moving on, though, this kind of the next part of what we wanted to talk about in the history of, of evolution is... Well, we've talked about the evolution a bit, now the history bit. Um, evolution through natural selection was an idea published as an official theory by Charles Darwin in 18... Charlie D. Charlie D. In the year 1859, in the book which you'll probably know, uh, on the origin of species by natural selection or the preservation of favoured races in the struggle for life. Catchy title. Um, That's really long. Too long. I, I always thought it was just called On the Origin, is it? On or the Origin, the origin of, species. of Species. All of that. Because the rest of it's just a bit... It's a bit long. He also got That's rid of it. In later editions, he did get rid of it on the preservation of favoured races in the struggle for life. But it should be okay. pointed out that races is not... It, hmm, tricky word. Um... Races and varieties were a word thrown around a lot back in the Victorian period for species. It was very interchangeable. The rules for nomenclature were not as strict as they are today. Just bear that one in mind. Um, but looking back at the, the the history of that book, it started 20 years previously when he returned from circumnavigating the globe at the young age of 23 uh, on the HMS Beagle in the 1930s. He went all along the coast of South America, up to the Galapagos Islands, mapping the coasts of, of South America. So it's specifically attributed to the Galapagos Islands that he visited in 1835. And I'm not going to lie, I actually remember that date because of a really good coffee shop on the Galapagos Islands called 1835. So he visited there and he took countless samples of the bird species, mockingbirds, finches, as well as the iguanas as well, as a really good example of, well, of this unique wildlife that lived on the Galapagos Islands. It should be made quite clear at this point in Victorian England and, and through the Christian society, 
that it was assumed that a creator had put all of the animals there and they had not changed for the 6,000 years that the world had existed. Genesis was... 6,000 years. 6,000 years wow. of Earth. And <laughs> the, the book of Genesis was taken very literally. Purely because no one had come up with a better idea yet that was widely accepted. To be fair, based on the evidence they had, why not really? Why not? I mean, the lack thereof of mm -hmm. evidence... The dinosaurs at this point were still being found, but no one was quite sure how to integrate them into natural theology, what would then turn into biology. Yeah, the, bio the subject of biology didn't even exist yet. But anyway, the, he, he collected loads of these things, and the, the bit that really clinched the, the, the aspect of change through generations for Charles Darwin, it didn't happen on the Galapagos for a start. It, it wasn't like this light came through the clouds and he was inspired uh, with this new theory he'd come up with. No, he got back home to England, to London. He looked at the samples with some colleagues of his and the mockingbird stood out on the islands for him and it, they stood out in the collections again as opposed to the finches, which are so... Uh, Darwin's finches, so famous, famously attributed to him. But no, the mockingbirds were very, very similar to the South American coast and they were very similar between the 23 islands of the Galapagos, similar feather colour, similar song, similar foodstuffs, but each one was very slightly different. In terms of Darwin's finches, these are the ones you probably would have read about in school. They're the ones that will have slightly different beaks because they've all got a slightly different food source. Although these did help Darwin, they did help, help him come to his theories on, on natural selection, this wasn't on the Galapagos Islands itself and this definitely didn't stand out for him. And also really, really important to notice, Darwin was absolutely awful at labelling things, which caused his own problems later on. If you ever feel like a bad scientist, you know, you're feeling good enough, just remember that Charles Darwin, the man who came up with the idea of it, published the theory of evolution, failed miserably to label anything. His organisation skills were not, were not up to scratch. But to be fair, he was 23 years old and he hadn't really done any of this before. It was... Not good enough. No excuse. <laughs> <To be fair. laughs> so yes, it was the mockingbirds that that really inspired him when he was on the islands. He talks about them quite at length in the Voyage of the Beagle, his book, which he published published soon after he got back to England about his voyages. And yeah, from Ecuador, nine hundred kilometers east of the Galapagos Islands, they were they were weirdly similar. So if a creator had put these mockingbirds on the Galapagos Islands, why hadn't he made them different? to the ones 900 kilometres away in Ecuador. And he came up with a suggestion with his friend John Gould, who was also studying the birds, and the fact that some animals from the island may, in previous time, have, on a wind or uh, got lost, literally flown to those islands which were empty of all life, and then from there this one or two varieties as he names them, or species, went to those islands and because there's nothing there it was an open niche. A niche is effectively a an animal's position in an ecosystem and because there was so much food of different varieties, so much habitat to in, in, inhabit, these finches effectively spread across these islands and adapted to the specific habitats, specific food sources. As well as that the finches virtually did the same as he actually says in The Origin of Species. And yes, so then after sitting and writing his theories down into an abstract, as he called it, 
it's kind of the short uh, short it's quite a long book and uh, this 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 book he called the origin on the origin of the species he literally put it under the stairs the massive manuscript was hidden for a very, very long time, purely because he didn't quite know how society was going to react to this new theory of his. Specifically his wife, who was a very, uh, very religious woman. He had lost his faith uh, quite a while ago. She was really worried for his soul, um, Emma Darwin, his his wife. Um, and also first cousin. And also first cousin. It was time. Um, <laughs> she was really, really worried for for his soul and... Maybe that he was being a little bit too heretical, but I think she still supported him from what I've seen, even though she was really worried. Well, it was absolutely. It was her who was given the option between... Um, like she read it through, and Darwin was immensely afraid of, of insulting her and pushing her away, but she was the one that went, nah, you know what? This is some good stuff. <laughs> Quote there. That she, she... Victorian England. <laughs> Quoting Emma Darwin, nah, this is some good stuff. Please publish it. And he was planning on how to do this, but he wasn't still sure yet. And then he got a letter from Mal uh, the malaria-stricken uh, Alfred Russell Wallace in Malaya, modern-day Malaysia. Naturalist and collector from Wales who's going out there doing a lot of private collecting, a lot of studying of, of the the um, these new islands. And with this letter, it outlines to Darwin basically his own theory back at him and he's realized he wasn't the first one to kind of put all this evidence together that had been building over many many years and many many scientists he wasn't the first one to put this idea together this dude the welsh dude in malaysia had got there first everything is not worth it anymore i shall burn the manuscript nothing is i've, I've yes he overreacted to say the least and then his two friends thomas henry huxley and joseph hooker told him to pull himself together and publish this thing. And he published a manuscript with, jointly with Alfred Russell Wallace. They both wrote the ending, the last chapter of Origin of Species. It's effectively, was, was massively influenced by Alfred Russell Wallace. But this manuscript was published in 1858 on the 1st of July on the tendency of species to form varieties. And it was read at the Linnaean Society in London. But... But nobody actually cared. <laughs> they read it and just <laughs> moved on with their lives. Well, no, they didn't even read it. Alfred Russell Wallace was still in Malaysia, suffering oh, from true. malaria. And Charles, Charles Darwin was back at his home in Kent and, and feeling sorry for himself because he was a hypochondriac. So even they didn't turn up to the own reading. <laughs> also, okay, some evidence now has has is saying that he might have had Chagas disease. Not being a hypochondriac, he might have been seriously ill from a disease he picked up on the voyage of the Regal. Just just defending Darwin there for a second. Ever since that point, he's been seen <laughs> as a hypochondriac. Uh, oh well, and so, <laughs> so oh, no one. <laughs> So no one really cared. It was to a very, very small audience. And Becca, I think you know this. What did the, what was it, the, the director of the Linnaean Society, what did he say as a... Yes, yeah, so the, the next year, the, essentially the leader of the Linnaean Society looked back at, at 1858, the, the year that this was published, and said that this was just one of those years where nothing really interesting happened in terms of science. It, you know, just one of those those times where it's just a bit of a dead water in terms of scientific advancement. Bear in mind, two of the arguably most famous scientists 
had published this world-changing idea, but nobody knew how world-changing it was yet. But at the time, Alfred Russell Wallace was only a collector in Malaysia and Charles Darwin... No, actually, at the time, Charles Darwin was a pretty prominent scientist, but he had been studying mollusks and bivalves <laughs> for the last 20 years. He sat at his home in Kent, basically just studying clams and limpets. And what was the thing that he was actually studying, which I cut? Barnacles! <laughs> he was studying barnacles a lot. So anyway... He went to publish his book in 1859. Why was it so controversial? Well, because a lot of Christendom at the time, a lot of Western society was Christian and it was going against the church's view on how the world was made and the fact that species are immutable or would not change. It was introducing this new idea of, of change through time. The world is a heck of a lot older than it is said so in the Bible. And from that, yeah, pretty, pretty controversial stuff. But published on 24th of November 1859, in which 1,250 copies were published and they sold out in the first day. It was pretty popular. And again, this was only his abstract. He was planning on a larger book entitled Natural Selection. Honestly, I, it was meant to be a three-volume thing. In a letter to his cousin, he explained kind of the breakdown of it and the way that he can waffle. It probably would have extended to at least six volumes. So... Thomas Henry Huxley is probably someone we should talk about a little bit. The He was known as Darwin's bulldog, and he fought hard for Darwin. He was the one that suggested to Darwin, well, I mean suggested, he said to Darwin, if you don't publish it and let Alfred Russell Wallace get there, we're going to, we will shout quite loudly in your defence. They had his back. They had his back. He was, he was a good dude. And yeah, he travelled the country when Darwin was unable to travel. Uh, he gave lectures, answered questions at universities, having debates. And one of the most famous of the debates was the Oxford debate. So really quickly, because we've got a lot of cool stuff to talk about. The Oxford debate happened in 1860. And Thomas Henry Huxley had been giving a lecture at the Oxford uh, University. And the day before he was meant to go home back to London, Bishop Samuel Wilberforce was giving a talk... He was an immensely powerful speaker in Oxford at the time, opponent of creationism. He was having a debate in the Oxford Natural History Museum. And the truth of, of the matter, he went and, well, Thomas Henry Huxley went to the Oxford Natural History Museum and, and had a really quite exciting civil debate. It was polite. There were good points from both sides. And it was entertaining, informative for the audience, unless you read the newspapers, which said it was a violent, sassy and... Frankly, Thomas Henry Huxley walked all over the Bishop Samuel Wilberforce. My favourite quote of this, actually, this isn't true, bearing in mind, which is really sad because I quite like it, but it, the, the conversation went something along the lines of Wilberforce saying, so, Mr Huxley, on which side do you descend from an ape, your mother's or your father's? <laughs> to which Huxley replies, frankly, I prefer to be related to the apes on both my parents' sides than related to the same species as you. <laughs> Mike Trump. Everyone screams, the crowd goes wild. Uh, cool quip, but uh, yeah, it's a sad fabrication, I'm afraid. So this whole whole thing, uh, sass aside, was basically one of the first debates between the idea of creationism, which is very Christian, and the idea of natural selection and evolution. Um, and you know what? It was all, all solved all solved in this debate, and, and there's no discrepancy between the two ideas today, and everybody gets on, and nobody's and arguing. everyone's happy, and it's fine. Everyone's friends, and, that, and Christians and, and evolutionary biologists can live together in harmony, and 
not just Christians, because there's a lot of Christians in science that are very much for evolution. Absolutely. You you can absolutely be a Christian still work in, in science and, and evolutionary biology. For example, the um, the head of the Human Genome Project, when it was running, is actually a very devout Christian. And, and one of the professors which has taught both of us at Southampton, actually, absolutely amazing uh, biologist. He's, uh, he's head of the Christians in Science Society. So, yes, getting slightly back on track here. Um, the third and final bit of, of the evolution history of evolution I wanted to talk about is evolution today. Biology is shaped through evolution. There is a very famous quote, everything that is done in biology is done in the light of evolution. That's not the quote. And I think that's, it's not a, it's not the right <laughs> quote. It's cool. The quote is, um, nothing in biology makes sense except in light of evolution. And I have had it handed to me. Thank you. <laughs> um, yes, thank you, Becca. So I think the main question, Becca, you deal with this one. I'm going to sulk in the corner. Are people still evolving? Is evolution still happening today? Well, isn't that a big question? Um, I actually heard this one quite a lot, not necessarily to myself. So when, when I've gone to see um, evolutionary biologists speaking, there's always, almost always someone who asks, so are humans still evolving? Now, this is slightly different because, like we mentioned earlier, evolution is all about adapting to your environment and the pressures. Now, as humans, we've kind of changed our environment. So we've, we've built houses, we've got medicines, and we've taken away all these pressures that would have stopped us from, from reproducing and having children. This idea is called niche construction. So niches is in the, the kind of space that you occupy, that you live in, and construction is building. So you build the space that you live in. Um, for example, beavers building their dams, which provides a nice home for them to live in. So it's the divas. Beavers. The divas build dams. The, the beavers. The be <laughs> I definitely said beavers. I'm pretty sure we're going to listen back to this and one of us is going to be wrong. It's going to be here. <laughs> beavers, little brown beavers, build dams, which can construct their niche that they then live in. So we've kind of got a different version of that. And we've removed those selection pressures, meaning natural selection forces aren't really going to be as strong. This is difficult, though, because there is there is some evidence that people are maybe changing or adapting. And even within the, the human species as we are now, there are slight differences between people that live in different areas, like um, the people who live in mountains in Tibet. They're much better at taking oxygen into their blood. A lot of athletes go and train up there so they can kind of change their bodies to do so. But that isn't necessarily evolution because you can do it to an individual. Evolution has to happen across a population, across species. Across generations. Across that's generations. Across generations. If anything, yeah. that's just adaptation. Yeah. Or, yeah. Or it's kind of brings in the idea of plasticity. So you can slightly oh change, change yourself the, the environment. But we'll come back to plasticity in another episode because it's very, there's a lot, there's a lot to it. It's very interesting. But um, yeah, so that's, that's a big old question. But quite possibly, maybe. Maybe. Right, so now I've given you a kind of brief but non-answer to that question, um, we're going to talk about some other ideas that people have. So, myth-busting. Woo! Myth-busting time! There are, of course, some, some things to think about in terms of arguments against the, the theory of evolution. Um, some of them are myths, so it's some myth-busting time. Well, a lot of them are myths, and yes. we're going to have a go at, well, we're busting against them, against these arguments against the theory of evolution. 
let's get straight in. Becca, I have one for you to start off with. Blind watchmaker theory. As in, if you were walking along a heathland, it was, I think, done by Reverend William Paley, this one, this example. Walking along a heathland and you find a watch in said heath, you would say it has been made um, by a human due to its complex nature. And this is often re referred to uh, and compared to the eye, saying it is far too complex to just have developed through time. They basically made the point that you can't have one part of a watch the complex way of watch works without the other bits like you can't have gradually build it up to make a watch it either is or isn't it works or it doesn't work exactly so yeah and in this kind of example the eye well for start, it, it, this is the intelligent design bit of it if the eye was designed by a creator it is quite poorly designed if that Octopuses have better ones than us, and we're literally 600 million years diverged from them. So um, that's literally the rise of life. We're very far away from them and they have better eyes. But we, we know exactly how they've developed because we can watch the development through different species. There is a, a, a spot of photosensitive cells which basically detect, is it light or dark? Can Am I under a rock or where is the sun? From there, it kind of forms a little dip and then that dip basically then allows for directionality. If there is light coming from one side, do I go towards the light? Can I go away from the light? Additionally, then it goes into filled with maybe a, a jelly-like substance, which can be formed as almost something to focus the light. This is mostly occurring underwater, but then from there it kind of forms a better well, and then a lens might develop, and then you've got pinhole camera eye, much like uh, the Nautilus has today, which is basically a shelled animal, lives under sea, tentacles. Quite, quite. Looks like a kind of upside down snail with a yes, yeah, or an ammonite. If you, yeah, comparable to an ammonite. If you know what an ammonite is, um, we find lots of them. They're basically the, the classic sort of shells that you see in fossils. Uh, so, and through that, it turns into a pinhole camera, and then from there, you can develop a lens. You've got a retina at the very back, and through these step stepping stones, as it were, you can develop quite a complicated eye, which can focus light through a lens put that lens onto the back of, of this retina and, and transmit those signals to a brain. Um, so you can have bits of the eye forming and it still works. We we literally see it. We see it from flatworms with the photosensitive cells. We see it to the, the nautilus with the pinhole camera eyes. And then we see it to us where we have our full on lens bearing eye as well as the octopus as well. And in terms of the eye also being badly designed, the optic nerve is slap on like in the middle of the retina. We have a blind spot because the optic nerve, which sends the vision to the brain, is also obscuring said vision. Also, it is when the lens focuses the light on the on the retina itself, which is which is the yeah the very back of the eyeball. It, it focuses the light upside down. And then your brain pieces together the vision. And we are going... I'm just going off a tangent Tangent on eyes. I feel like we're going to need a whole episode on um, on eyes. <laughs> we're talking about myth-busting theories, but eyes clearly have a lot to them, so we'll come back to that in <laughs> the future. They do. Absolutely do. Mm -hmm. So that's the thing. If the eye is being used in that example, it just doesn't work. Also, there are, everything is stepping stones. Everything is done through stepping stones, which we can see and we can model and we can and we can visualize in animals today, as well as genes itself. 
And evolution can only occur on what's actually already there as well. It can't just invent something out of nowhere. Like the genes already have to be somewhat in place, which is kind of why you get the stepping stones. It's a process. Um, another one, actually, one of my favourite examples of this, of of I've put this in quotation marks, poor design, is the giraffe and something called the recurrent laryngeal nerve, which is the nerve which goes from your larynx, your voice box, to your brain. And it. What does the recurrent part mean? It means it goes back on itself because it's a little odd how it works. So okay, it's, so it's your your voice box nerve that goes back on itself. Yes. So what happens? It starts at your voice box, which is very near your skull, as you're probably aware, and then it goes all the way down to your heart, and then it loops under the main artery, which leaves your heart, called the aorta, and then it loops underneath that, and then it goes all the way back to your brain, basically harking back to a time when we were all fish and had gill arches. But anyway, this is probably a diversion of about, I don't know, a few centimetres in humans. It's not very far to go down, loop underneath a blood vessel and then, then hop back up again. So it's kind of weird, but it doesn't matter too much. Exactly. However, okay. if we look at giraffes, which literally have a four and a half metre neck, well, their voice box, is uh, the, their larynx, is still very much up near the head which is at the top of the neck, and then that nerve travels all the way down the neck and then loops underneath its heart and then goes all the way back up the neck again to the brain. And that, that isn't just, I don't know, a 10 centimetre detour. This is a 15 foot, a five, literally a 5 metre detour in giraffes. So it matters a bit more. So to the whole thing with intelligent design, which is the entire point of this before I went on a rambling thing, poor design happens through stepping stones and... Almost, it, yes, even if it's a bit rubbish to start with. So we've got two more, we've got two more small myth-busting bits to deal with. Um, another one for you, Becca. Evolution is not happening right, happening right now. Oh, it How... so is. Oh, who said that? Okay, right. <laughs> non in, no, non-insulting. Um, okay, no, but seriously. This is just one example. Antibiotic resistance. You you probably know that we have to take antibiotics very carefully because if we take them too much, they stop working. That is evolution, but it's evolution of the bacteria that you're trying to get rid of. So basically, the more you hammer a bacteria with antibiotics or a population of bacteria, that's the new pressure that you've added. And they can just evolve to that. Like They can evolve to any pressure. Like, they don't know the difference. <laughs> so, for example, if you've got uh, an antibiotic that kills 99.9% .9 of, of the bacteria population, there is still 0.1% of that population which will survive. And basically what you've done is wipe out all the weaker ones that didn't have that, um, that defence against antibiotics, and you've left now loads of space for the ones that do have that mutation. So if you don't take your whole course of antibiotics, if you stop early, you're not killing all the bacteria that's there because you haven't got a strong enough dose, you're leaving the strong ones that have been able to survive the dose you've given so far. And now you've made loads of space for them to be able to grow and grow and grow. So now you've got an infection that's resistant to the antibiotics. And that is simply evolution. And you've effectively just grown super bacteria. Yes, MRSA anyone? That's, hang on, hang on, I know this one. That's methicillin resistant streptococcus aureus. Yes. Hey. Nice. Um, it's uh, it's one of the most prevalent diseases, uh, bacteria in hospitals. It's resistant to quite a lot of antibiotics. It's resistant to most cleaning fluid. 
But what's what's scary is that that is that may be the most well known one, but it's not the only one. And I'm kind of going off off tangent here, but we've got some really special antibiotics that we hold back for really important cases where we need to get rid of the infection because lives are at stake. But some bacteria have even become resistant to them now. And that's again, it's just evolution. It's all evolution. So how can you say it's not happening? You can you can see it all the time. I think that's a perfect example of evolution. Certainly, is happening right now. So the third and final bit of myth busting is the no ancient forms can be found to link together or link to modern day species. Is this kind of like the, the missing link idea? Yeah. For example, you found a fossil and it looks like a thing that's alive today, but doesn't link with it because it's, I don't know, it's still got legs, whereas the other thing has fins. And, and I think the example I want to use here is very much whales. We have a really clear fossil record of cetaceans of the whales and a stepwise change between the very ancient things, which look like kind of wolf-like deer, if you can imagine that, uh, called Indohyus, which wandered around on the banks of rivers. And then you've got the next, we have, we have more fossils slightly more recently called Ambulacetus, which was literally translates as the walking whale, and which swam around, had webbed feet, and then slowly over time you hit the Bacillosaurus, which was an elongated wolf-like deer animal with less legs and more fin things. Then you've got Duodon, which was, these were purely living in water at this point, only fins. The legs at this point, the hind legs were disappearing, a fluke that on their tail was developing. And then you get the Odontocetes and the Mysticetes, the toothed whales and the baleen whales that live today. We have a really clear stepwise example on how these things change. So would you say everything probably has that, we just don't have the fossils for it? Because that's, that's, exactly. that's great it's... for whales, but that doesn't explain all missing links. No, absolutely. I think this is just a perfect example of the evidence. Is there out there somewhere? Maybe, hopefully. I mean, fossils and, and the fossilization process is, is quite a tricky fossils one. Fossils are quite temperamental. Uh, yeah, they don't always survive and depends, depends where they fossilize as well. But the evidence was there. Mm, no. But this just shows that you can link fossilised forms to modern day forms. After those three bits of myth busting, that's all we've got for you this episode on the whirlwind tour of the history of evolution, natural selection, and yeah, dealing with some myth busting at the end there. It's hopefully a good idea on how the podcast is going to run in terms of structure. We're going to be doing more specific evolutionary theories and examples and looking at specific animals as well. And people, big names as well, um, that we think have been really underrepresented. So big evolutionary biologists that have done great things that really aren't being talked about too much. And they really, really should be. And they have great stories as well. Really, really interesting kind of tales about how they got to the ideas that they got and then why that got buried and why nobody's really heard about them. No, exactly. And we're really, really looking forward to continuing this on and, and hopefully educating a bunch of you in the process. And each other. And each other, because, yeah... I'm still learning a lot. Yeah. Anyway, moving on to one of, I think, is going to be my favourite part of each episode. So we're going to have an animal of the episode where Tom and I will each bring to you um, an animal that's relevant to what we've talked about. Doesn't Actually, I say animal. It's not always going to be an animal, isn't it? Living, living thing of the yeah, episode. Living thing, an organism. <laughs> the animal of the episode sounds much nicer. So what we're going to do is we're going to bring you this animal, talk about why we think it's so awesome and so relevant to the episode, we're then going to put a poll up on our Twitter, at Darwin Blackbook. 
And then you can vote on which one you think is best or best answers the question or which one you just like the most. In the next episode, we'll talk about who won and reveal the results. And bearing in mind, this is also a uh, loyalty thing for which co-host you prefer. So just making that very no, no, clear. No, no, no. no, no which person no, do you the prefer? <laughs> the best the best animal or living thing you think have been, has been presented here. Yep. Okay. Thank you, Tom. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> cool. So, yes, if you do want to get involved and have a little vote, we're probably going to be putting the poll on Twitter. Yes. Perfect. Okay. When the episode goes out. Becca, what is your animal of the episode, please? So we've been talking about the Galapagos Islands and Darwin's finches have come up a lot. Um, Darwin's finches are not just one species. They are lots of different ones, lots of different species. So I'm picked one called the medium tree finch. There's also the small and large tree finch. Um, but the medium tree finch is actually critically endangered. A few Darwin's finches are most are doing kind of okay, but these ones need more more support and more help, basically, and I want to draw some attention to that. So you can only find them on one of the islands in the Galapagos, Floriana Island, particularly in the forests, but you can see them all year round. They are at really high threat from um, non-natural predators, so people bringing cats and dogs to the island, rats, pigs, and a parasitic fly that's all completely invasive. It's not, it wasn't supposed to be there, that's not what they adapted to, but they are actually adorable looking birds. They're so round, they're kind of yellowy brown, they've got big eyes, um, and they're just so fluffy. And they're, they're So you've got on the cuteness factor. And because they, they, need, they need support, like the Galapagos Conservation Trust, which is the website I got this information from, um, you can donate to them and they're basically looking at ways that they can mitigate these these problems that they're having and sorting out these threats. Okay, so if you don't know what one of these looks like, I have just Googled it and it is adorable. So... <laughs> Yay. <laughs> <laughs> I do but have yes, to give it absolutely. to you. Absolutely. On that note, definitely have a look at the Galapagos Conservation Trust, even if you're not in a position to, to donate right now. There's a lot of information on there on the work that they're doing for the islands. And Tom and I have both had the privilege to be able to go out there and do some field work there. Um, and they're just, they're just, it's just such a unique place that really needs protecting. And these birds are just one of the many species that they need, need our help right now. Right, that was Becky's animal of the episode. My animal of the episode is the marine iguana, also from the Galapagos Islands. They are one of my favourite animals, I think, of all time. Well, that's a good entry, to be fair. They're, <laughs> they are they're cool too. fantastic. <laughs> they are one of the world's only marine lizards uh, that, that feed primarily uh, on algae at sea as well as in rock pools they are a few feet long they can range from the deepest black lava colored black to uh, almost kind of greeny pinkish on some of the other islands as well they live in massive colonies they have such a massive personality darwin called them imps of darkness if that isn't a reason to vote for them <laughs> But I think McClinching... He wasn't their biggest fan. <laughs> he did call them dull, uh, dull-witted and stupid and then kept throwing them in the sea and... Yeah. He did some nasty experiments. He did some that. weird stuff to them. Um, but no, the reason why I think I wanted to choose this as my animal of the episode is I have been doing some research for a little thing I'm putting together at the moment about the marine iguana and one of the main questions that comes up is the with the marine, big marine iguanas constantly at sea foraging on algae at the bottom of, uh, of the seabed very near mangroves, very near a lot of forests where lots of sharks live. And the question that I keep having is, why doesn't a shark take a bite out of one of these fairly chunky iguanas when they're foraging? 
Quite meaty. Quite meaty. So there is hardly any evidence on this at all. And I found this from one interview in 1999 from the person that was measuring heartbeats across hundreds of animals. He was doing primarily his work on whales. But he stated and measured whenever a marine iguana was approached within three or four metres by a shark, the marine iguana's heart stopped. Sharks hunt through electrical signals in the water. They can hear the heartbeat. They can detect it. If the heartbeat stops, the sharks can no longer detect it because they've got really rubbish eyesight. And every time a shark got near to a marine iguana underwater, the marine iguana's heart stopped. Ooh. That's a weird adaptation. Wow. The only other lizard that can actually do this is the Komodo dragon, and no one's entirely sure why this adaptation has come about. But with that amazing tray, I think they deserve to be animal of the episode. So. Okay, good, good case. So I'm going to pop both of those on Twitter with pictures. And yeah, and you can vote. And then our next episode, which is going to be on extreme living, um, we will talk about which, which one won. And that is at Darwin Blackbook. Perfect. So just finally, social media locations. Becca, where can you find us once again? For the millionth time this episode on Twitter, at DarwinBlackbook <laughs> or hashtag DBB. Perfect. And you can find us hopefully on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Android's podcast player, amongst anywhere else I figure out we can upload this to when I get around to uploading this episode. Trust, I will be far more specific next episode. <laughs> I'd also like again to give a huge thank you to the British Ecological Society for funding the startup of this podcast. And you can find out more about them and join the society at BritishEcologicalSociety.org. Perfect. And um, finally, really, really quickly, if you did like us, please let us know. Tweet at us. Uh, and if you want to leave a review on iTunes, it'd be most appreciated, but only if it's nice. Uh, half joking there. Yeah, we're going to try and get an episode out every two-ish weeks or thereabouts as we both have research going on as well. And I actually have to get around to making a documentary uh, that I've been sitting on for far too long, as well as a dissertation. As well as that, uh, yes, you can find Becca at... RebeccaJWhite.co.uk And you can find me at, if you want any more information, at ThomasLand.co.uk Not to be confused with Thomas the Tank Engine Land, which apparently has the same name as me, which I'm kind of depressed about. But it's fine. And also one last thank you to Tom's friend Ed, who designed the Darwin head that's on our logo very kindly for us. And another massive thank you to you, Becca, for, who designed all the rest of the social media banners and cover art. Thank you thank very you. much for doing that. Very kind. Um, all right, I think that is all. I just want to leave you with a quote by Sir David Attenborough very quickly, uh, which some food for thought as we go. But it seems to me that the natural world is the greatest source of excitement, the greatest source of visual beauty, greatest source of intellectual interest it is the greatest source of so much in life that makes life worth living thank you so much for listening we'll see you in the next episode Goodbye.